Father, I come in weakness this morning as your child to a very great and strong Father and happily declare with these people, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Father, pour out your spirit now among us that we might see Jesus. We ask this in his mighty name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to the fourth gospel here in the first chapter. And I'm bringing you a message that I pray will, in the days ahead, burn in your heart. This morning we want to look at, very briefly, some glimpses from the book of John that show us our invisible God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. This God who made the universe, this God who spoke animals and mountains and oceans into being with a word came down to become a child and dwell among us that he might make known who God is. His title was Emmanuel, God with us. And so we've just read in John 1.14 that this word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his Glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And O covenant life, don't you know that we need grace and truth? And our Lord is full of grace and truth. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, that is the Father, but Christ, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made the Father known. Children, I'm so glad that you are all in the service this morning. And young people, I'm so glad that you are here with us, and I invite you to follow along with me. And if you hear something that's helpful, come tell me after the service. Children, if you like to draw pictures, today would be a great day to draw pictures, because we're going to hear of some pictures that God's word gives us. Covenant life. Who is God? The men's retreat, we consider the reality that in the beginning, God created. He created the heavens and the earth. He created all things. We can't see this God. How can we know him? Thus our text in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and this Word became flesh. 
in the beginning God, Genesis. And then we go to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. We have this great encounter where Moses encounters God in the form of this burning bush. And Moses is being called to go speak to the most powerful man on earth. And he asks God, who shall I say has sent me? And God speaks to Moses in that burning bush. And he says, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And when they ask, what is his name? Moses says, what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. God said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. The self-existent one. The uncreated one the one from whom all other reality was created. I am has sent you. And so Moses goes to that most powerful man and declares that I am had sent him. God is I am. He's not I was in the past, not I will be in the future, but I am for you right now today. Raise your hand if you're here. Just want to make sure you're with me. That rain out there this morning was wet. That fog yesterday was thick. Your heart right now is beating. Your lungs right now are breathing. Why? Because God was, God will be, and God is. And God created you. He is the designer. And you are his design. And that is obvious to all of us that we are not making our heart beat. We are not making our lungs breathe. We did not form our eyes. God did. And yet our world is filled with unbelief. And in our own hearts, we have this great battle with unbelief. Why do we have such a great battle? Because I want to do what I want to do. And I really, in my heart of hearts, don't want there to be an authority. I don't want someone to tell me what I want to do. And this is true for even the littlest infants among us. They happily declare with some of their first words, me do it, me have it. And yet faith comes and drives out unbelief from our hearts. And faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of God. So our great God has come in the flesh our great God of great glory, and he comes full of grace and truth. And Emmanuel comes, and he is revealed across this book of John. He spoke to us seven great I am statements. We want to consider them this morning. But he also used this phrase, ego ami, or I am, in multiple other instances in John. We'll just consider two encounters, one before those I am statements and one after. And each one, we will see a glimpse of this great God who has dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. What we're going to see this morning is that Jesus is a master of taking the physical and then showing us something more important. In each instance, we're going to see Jesus make a declaration, I am 
something. But the reason that I'm here is this. Each time he says that statement about who he is, it shines a light into our hearts and shows us a need that is so deep and real that we may not even know we have. And then he comes around and shows us how who he is is the good news we need for that need. This is what grips me about this message. How Christ has shown me my true need and how he has come to meet that need and I pray that this happens for you. It is like a doctor who gives us a long-awaited and yet accurate diagnosis. It is devastating and it is helpful. We're only gonna get to sample each one today, but I pray that some of these will call you back to go and soak in and find grace and truth from our Lord. We begin with this first encounter. We find it in John 4. It is when Jesus speaks to the most unlikely person he could be found to be speaking to. Jesus was a man. Jewish men didn't often speak in public to women. They certainly didn't often speak to Samaritan women. And they most certainly didn't speak to outcast Samaritan of bad reputation. And yet here in John, we find Jesus speaking to just such a woman. She is out in the middle of the day to draw water. She's out in the middle of the day to draw water in the heat of the sun. Why? Because most of the women draw water in the morning or the evening. But she wasn't allowed in most comfortable company. And so here, she, here Jesus is with this woman marked by shame and outcast. She's a woman who's living with a man who's not her husband. She has had five husbands before this man. And Jesus doesn't come to berate her, but to call her to true worship. For her, her core problem in chasing after relationship after relationship was a worship problem. And the woman said to him, I know that when Messiah comes, this one who is called Christ, this one we've been waiting for, who is called the anointed one of God's spirit, the expected one, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you, I am. And so she runs off and she tells the whole town, come and meet a man who has told me all that I have done. Jesus comes here to this most unlikely person. It's like an echo of the first appearance of God in the form of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. The first appearance is to the most unlikely person. In Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord appears to an outcast, homeless, foreign, single mother without a hope in the world named Hagar. And when he appears, he appears with tenderness such that she says to him, you are a God of seeing. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that whatever hidden shame you have brought into this room today, whatever secret battle you have been fighting, 
Your God sees you. He knows you. And he is full of grace and truth for you. He invites you into this community that is not a country club for those who are polished and shiny who do it all right. He invites you into this hospital of people, none of us who have done it all right. All of us have our secret struggles. All of us need this God full of grace and truth. So if you've never talked to anyone about your hidden struggle, I invite you. This is the place to come. God welcomes you. And he says, bring this to me. Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to forgive those who think, have thought, that God hates you or is disappointed with you. He came to take away your sin and my sin. Pastor Justin, other leaders, others, brothers and sisters, they won't be surprised. They won't be shocked. The sin that you think is so unique is actually quite common. All right. Now the actual first I am statement of Jesus. Now we go to John 6. The crowds were hungry. Anyone here, here ever get hungry? Don't worry, I'll be done in a couple of hours. You'll get to lunch. It'll be great. When we're hungry, what do we want? We want lunch. We want food, preferably good food. Hot, delicious bread is always a good option. And Jesus stunned all those in this audience here in John 6. He says that your Exodus fathers were hungry in the desert, and what did God do for them? He gave them bread. He gave them bread in the form of manna. And now, Jesus, like his father, feeds these hungry thousands. He said to his disciples, you give them something to eat. They were unable to meet this need. They didn't have nearly enough. Jesus was more than able. There's baskets left over. And yet then he turns the corner and says, this physical is pointing to a greater spiritual reality. They say, Jesus, give us this bread always. We want you to just come and feed us every single day. And he says, no, no, no. I am the bread of life. Friend, when you consider that Jesus is the bread of life, what is the need that this one who is the bread of life has come to meet in your soul? Your physical hunger is pointing you to a greater need that you have in your soul which is a greater hunger, a greater thirst, a soul hunger, a soul thirst that you have been working and working and working to satisfy. You're working at your job to gain more money, to buy more things, to satisfy this deep soul hunger. Sometimes we eat to satisfy this soul hunger. Sometimes we pursue relationships to satisfy this soul hunger. And yet all the while, we often are blind to this reality that what we're trying to satisfy, this, this hole, this need we're trying to fill is soul hunger, soul thirst. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows. So he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me 
shall not thirst. The commercials offer us satisfaction. Buy this and be satisfied. And yet they always disappoint. Friends, you were made for the one who made you. And he has come to satisfy you most deeply. So he says, come to me. Believe in me. Let me ask you a question. Do you eat once and that's it for the rest of your life or do you eat daily? Will you eat today or will you eat every day? Will you be only hungry today or will you be hungry tomorrow and every other day? Silly questions, maybe. But do you need Christ today or do you need Christ every day? Will you have spiritual hunger today or will you have spiritual hunger every day? Do not work, Jesus says to these friends, that for the food that perishes. Do you need to believe in Christ today or every day? Do you need to come to Christ today or every day? We need this right perspective that Christ is giving us in this moment. The deepest hunger of your soul will not be satisfied with stuff. You were created for this relationship with God. Christ is the one who satisfies and he wants you to be so aware that he goes on and he pushes this metaphor saying that we should eat his flesh and drink his blood. Some early critics said he's calling for cannibalism. No, no. He's calling us to come and feed on him. Just as we eat and take nourishment each day, we need to come and take nourishment and feed on Christ. Come by faith. Feed on him by faith in the reading and the hearing and the studying and the meditating on his word, feeding on him the bread of life because in him alone can we be satisfied. But so many Christians miss this. Instead of feeding on Christ, they are fasting on Christ. Christ did not just give us his life, but he gave us his death. And he said, here is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, said this, communion with Christ requires our coming to him, meditating upon his person, and his work requires the diligent use of the means of grace, and especially the prayerful reading of his word. Many fail to abide because they habitually fast instead of feed. Jesus is the bread of life. And we're going to hear in each of these examples, life, life, life. In Christ was life. End of the book, he says, these things have been written so that you may believe in Christ and by believing in him, you might have life. Life that is truly life. God made us for life that is truly life. We live in a world full of imitations, but Christ has come to give us life. Statement number two. John 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 
Who is Jesus? He's the light of the world. What deep need does he diagnose in our hearts? Well, let me answer it this way. Earlier I said I'm thankful for all the children, young people that are here in this room, in this church. What is their biggest problem? If you go poll your neighbors, many would say they need a great education. Many parents would say, my great hope for my children is that they would have great success. The Bible's answer to the greatest need that our children have and that we as adults have is that we were born in darkness and we live in a world marked by darkness. If you've ever gone to a hotel, when you first enter the room, what do you do? You turn on the light. It's not very comfortable to try to navigate a new room when it is in darkness. It's unsettling not be able to see. And yet the darkness of this world is so much worse. With each of these statements of Jesus, we are brought to see a deep problem that at times we didn't even recognize that it existed or it existed for us. His solution is meant to affect us. But for that to truly affect us, we must consider the problem. So brothers and sisters, consider this problem of darkness for a moment. When you realize what the Bible describes with this condition of darkness, what Jesus is saying begins to change your life. It shapes how you see everything. The greatest problem in Florida, darkness. The greatest problem in our country, darkness. What does this mean? Jesus said this in John 3. He said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Friend, do you know that we were born in darkness? Doing evil deeds, hating the light? See, darkness is this combination on the one hand of ignorance and blindness but on the other hand, a love of evil deeds. And this pairing of these two realities is the darkness that marks our hearts apart from Christ. This is life apart from Christ. This is the problem of education in America. It is racked and riddled with darkness. It is life apart from Christ. A life immersed in darkness, hating the light. And yet the prophet Isaiah did not leave us there, but instead he gave us the great promise. In Isaiah 9 verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Those people walked in darkness. They lived in a land of deep darkness. And friends, some of you have encountered evil. True. Real. 
ferocious evil. Young people, some of you in this room have been shocked as you've been slapped in the face with evil. You just go, whoa, what is that? And as you grow, it slaps you hard and you're stunned and not sure what to do with it, feeling pulled into it and repulsed by it at the same time. But this evil is real. This evil is this darkness that we are describing. It is real evil. And the longer you live, the more you will see this is the biggest problem in the world, this evil, this darkness. And friends, each of us, apart from Christ, this is who we are. We are those who live in darkness. No light, no grace, no truth, no glory. Hating and being hated. But now in Christ, we can wake up, we can walk over to that eastern sky, and we can see that light dawning. We can look up at noon and see that bright, shining noonday sun. Why? Why do we see its glory and its brilliance? Because it's pointing us to a greater light. Remember what 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says? The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to see the greater light, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Into our darkness, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friend, if you are a follower of Christ this morning, he has brought you out of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son, and there is nothing greater than this. Nothing greater that you could want for your children than this. Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, uncles, older saints in this body, I hope you pray with every fiber in your being for your children and for the children of this church. As a dad with seven kids, my prayer requests are really simple. Lord, help my kids to know Jesus. Bring them a spouse that loves Jesus. Give them children that love Jesus. Let your light shine into their hearts that they might see and might escape this darkness. This is the greatest problem, and this is the greater solution. Consider covenant life, what God is doing in you and through you to this extent. Ephesians 5, 8 is true of you, follower of Jesus, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. John 12, 46 it's what Jesus said when he said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. Colossians 1.13 is what he's done for his people. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Finally, one more. These are so good. 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you 
out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. Tell somebody about it. Proclaim his excellencies. If God has done this in your life, he wants you to share it. All right, let's go to the third and fourth. We're going to put these together because they're right together in John 10. Jesus says to us, I am the door of the sheep and I am the good shepherd of the sheep. Who is Jesus? He is the door of the sheep. He is the good shepherd of the sheep. What does that say about us? We're sheep. Good news and bad news. The bad news is sheep aren't all that bright. Sheep are pretty helpless. Sheep tend to follow other sheep and follow the crowd. Good news, we're his sheep. And he's our good shepherd. He's the door of the sheep. So sheep prone to wander off, unable to protect themselves. And into that moment, the most famous psalm tells us, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. The hundredth psalm tells us we are his sheep, the sheep of his pasture. Jesus says here in John 10 verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find a pasture. The thief that is the enemy of your soul who is so very real, comes only to steal from you and kill you and destroy you. As we said at the men's retreat, he uses one weapon to do that. Lies. He's lying to you over and over. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your kids. But Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. I'm the door. You come into me and you receive life, abundant life now and forever. The thief, he's no good. But then Jesus says it again, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Remember what Isaiah said? Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us turning to our own path of rebellion, our own way. But the Lord laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. Friend, if you are here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, you say, I don't know what's even happening this morning. Who is this guy? What are we doing? Just want you to know God made you and your great problem is that you have wandered off into rebellion against the God who made you. You have gone to your own way. And you will stand before God in judgment and he will see everything that you've ever done and he will declare you guilty. But he knew this was the greatest problem you had. And so he sent his perfect son to become the lamb of God to die a perfect death for you. He laid on Christ the iniquity of your life and us all that you might be his forever. Believe on him. Christ 
has come, God in the flesh. This perfect man, this Lamb of God. He is both Lamb of God and He is the Good Shepherd. He is the door of the sheep and He is the Good Shepherd of the sheep. And He says this in John 10, 17 and 18, lest we think He died as a victim. Lest we think He was simply swept along in a godless conspiracy. He was. But He wants you to know he could have done something about it at any point. I love this text because our good shepherd is not a weak victim. He is a mighty and strong, willing sacrifice crawling up on the altar to die. Here's what it says in John 10, 17. It says, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. Loved ones, we are sheep. Christ is the door that we enter into that we might have life and have it abundantly. We are sheep that went astray, but Christ is the good shepherd who laid down his life for you, who demonstrated the love of God for you by laying down his life only to take it up again and invite you to be with him forever. So Jesus is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the door of the sheep. He is the good shepherd. And one we really, really need is this fifth one in John 11. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. What need does this reveal in our hearts? We're going to die. Every person that raised their hand is going to die. Apart from Christ's soon return, we will die. This world has no answers for death. You can search all you want on Amazon. You're not going to find it. You can go through the White House's entire plan. They've got nothing for you. Elon Musk, as clever as he is, not going to develop an answer for death. But Christ knew this great need that we have. Children, I want to speak to you for a moment. Children and young people, I don't know if any of you have ever been to a funeral. Children, raise your hand if you've ever been to a funeral before. Here's what I want you to know. As you grow up, you're going to hear a lot of nonsense at some of the funerals you go to. You're going to hear people talk about how the person that died is in a better place. Farmer Jim, he's on a big tractor in the sky. <laughs> Baseball player Sam, he's in that ball field in the sky. Old Aunt Jenny, she's up there knitting in the sky. But Jesus is here to tell us he is the resurrection and the life. And the only way we will be resurrected with him for life everlasting with him is through him. Not just because we die. Dying doesn't mean we automatically go to be with him. 
So I want you to talk to your parents about this thing that gets said so often. They're all in a better place. They're all going to a better place. Ask them at lunch today. If a man came to your door and asked your parents, hey, I'd like you to invest with me. In fact, why don't you invest all of your retirement with me? And then they ask him, well, where will you invest my money? Don't worry. It's going to be in a better place. Ask your parents what they would do with such a man. <laughs> Let me tell you, they'd be very serious about protecting their money. And oh, how much more serious we should be about this more important reality, about how people talk about what comes after death. You see, in John 11, Jesus is coming to his friend's death site. His friend Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. They were all friends with Jesus. And in John 11, we read that Lazarus, Jesus' friend, was sick. And Jesus didn't rush off to heal him. He waited until he died. Why? Well, he said, I am glad that Lazarus has died. Why? So that you, he says to his friends, may believe. For you are going to see glory. And Jesus didn't just talk, I am the resurrection and the life. He displayed his glory, his power, his authority. So in John 11, 25 and 26, we read, Jesus said to Martha, Martha said, if only, if only you had been here, Jesus, you could have done something. Is that true? Absolutely. Did Jesus delay because he hated them? No, no, no. He says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Mary comes and she says the same thing, Jesus, if only. If only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Does Jesus say to her, Mary, don't worry. I've got this handled. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Mary's distraught. Her brother has died. She's in tears. She is weeping. And Jesus goes with her. And we read that famous shortest of verses, Jesus wept. That's always the punchline to the, the joke, you know, what's the Bible verse you want to memorize? But I want you to know that verse is so important. Jesus wept with her. Jesus saw her pain. Jesus entered into her pain and her grief, and he wept with her. He knew what he was going to do. And it says in verse 33 that he was deeply moved. He, he had this, 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 this anger, this rage in him. It's like an animal anger, an animal snorting. Pastor Tim Keller talks about this, and it says, why did he feel so deeply moved? Why this strong emotion? Yes, his friend had died, but it's emotion that's even stronger than we would expect him to have. Have. Pastor Keller says Jesus at that moment saw every death, every funeral that he wouldn't be at to raise that body. And he knew the only way to defeat death was for him to die. The bread must be broken. The light must be extinguished. The shepherd must be struck down. 
And the one who is the resurrection and the life must himself die. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again this emotion. He wants to defeat death. He knows that he's about to defeat death. Death should not be, and yet it will be, and it has been for everyone we know and love and everyone in this room. Death is serious. Death is awful. And Jesus knows that. He's deeply moved by our, this reality of death in our life. And so, children, there was a cave. In those days, they didn't have a cemetery. They had a cave. They had a big stone in front of it. And he said, roll away the stone. And they say, Lord, it's been four days. That dead body is going to stink really bad. Are you sure you want to do this? And then he says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? It was for the glory of God that the Son of Man might be glorified through it. Lazarus has died for your sake. I am glad so that you may believe. And then children, you know what he says. He says four words. What does he say? Three words. Sorry. Three words. Lazarus, come forth. And that dead man gets up and he walks out as a demonstration that the one who said he is the resurrection and the life is the resurrection and the life for him and for you. And if he wouldn't have said his name, all those dead bodies would have got up and come forth. This is a unique moment in history. No one had ever done this. He is not just talking. There is no one else in history like him. Covenant life, oh, come let us adore him. Our God is the resurrection and the life. Sixth, John 14, Jesus says, let not your soul be troubled. Anyone here ever have soul trouble? Anyone here your own thoughts, in your own life, in your own space? Ever experienced fear gripping your heart? Anxiety come to wind itself around your body and soul and mind? If we're honest, for many of us, this is a huge issue. At the end of this 14th chapter, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Friends, this is so important to think that there actually may be help and hope for troubled hearts. Jesus is speaking to a very tender part of our being, a very personal, intimate part of our struggle with being human. Where do we go at 3 a.m. when our heart is racing? Where do we go when we feel all alone in this crazy world? Where does relief come from? For many, they just go to distraction and amusement. One more show, one more game. Others go to alcohol or pills or drugs or relationships. Others just seek to buy their way out. Just going to buy something else, buy something else, buy something else. And into this moment, we have John 14. Verse six verses, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to them, I am the way. I am the truth. Not a truth. Not your truth or my truth. I am the truth and I am the life. Life, 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 life. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus brings you to the Father. Jesus goes to prepare a place for you. When Jesus goes to prepare a place for you, he's not with Chip and Joanna Gaines redecorating his father's house. He is going to the cross to purchase, prepare a place for you to secure for his saints an eternal redemption. That text we read from 1 Peter, that inheritance that he has secured for his saints will be yours if you are in Christ. An inheritance that will never perish, that is undefiled, that will never fade away, and it is reserved in heaven for you. Christ goes to prepare a place for you. He says he will not leave us as orphans but he will send the Spirit, the Helper, in my name, and he will teach you all things into your soul trouble. He says, you're not orphans. I have made a way for you to go to the Father, to be in relationship with the Father. All who receive me, I give the right to become children of God. We have a Father, and he said, it's better that I go, that I leave with you the Helper, the Holy Spirit who comes into your life and fills you, drives out the old man, the old patterns, and he fills you with his power and his fruit. He fills you freshly with love and joy and peace and patience. You say, I can't be a parent. He says, I will give you my goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and kindness. I will give you, struggler, my self-control. And so he does not leave us as orphans, but he teaches us to pray our Father. J.I. Packer says this, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the door of the sheep. He is the good shepherd of the sheep. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And this last statement comes in John 15. It's the only one that doesn't mention life. Why? Because here in John 15, we're confronted with something I feel so often. Maybe none of you do. I'm guessing there are a few of you that feel this confronted that I often feel that is my weakness. Father, why am I not stronger? Why can't I work harder? Why am I not smarter? Why am I not more gifted, more skilled? Why can't I get more done? And into that reality, Jesus says, John 15, 1 and 15, 5, he says, I am the true vine. 
My Father is the vine dresser. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. There's a whole bunch of people out there doing a whole bunch of things. But Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing that matters for eternity. Who is Jesus? He is the true vine. What does this say about us? It's a little humbling, but of all the things you could be in the world, a dragon, a tidal wave, you are the branch. That tree in the courtyard, the fourth one down, kind of just hanging there, that's you. That's me. Is this good news? I want to be the star of the show. Daughter, did you get a part in the play? Yes, I'm a branch. But there's really good news here. Really good news here. When we think of our weakness, when we wonder, will our life have significance? Will we accomplish anything meaningful? With our weakness and our limitation, we have this great promise that if we will abide in Jesus and allow him to remain in us, not, not life that he promises, but fruit. Our lives produce fruit. Not because we're awesome. Not because we're the superhero. Not because we're the star of the show. But because we're remaining in the one who is. No one comes to Niagara Falls with a bucket and trying to add a little water to it. They just come with their bucket and say, let me fill it up. And there's no problem because it's got plenty of water. And the vine has all of the strength that we need, all of the energy that we need, all of the perfection that we need, all of the knowledge, all of the kindness that we need. And he says, just remain, just remain. I love John 15. I'd please go back and just reflect on it a long time. But just here's your to-do. It's John 15, 9, when Jesus says, as the Father loves me, as the eternal Father perfectly loves the eternal Son, so Jesus says, I love you. Remain in my love. What does a branch do? It just remains. It just remains. It stays plugged into the vine, the tree that brings all the fruit. If you will remain in Jesus, he's just going to bring fruit out of your lives, fruit that will remain Fruit in your life as a man, as a woman, as a boy or a girl. He's going to bear fruit in your life. Just remain in his love. Just keep looking and seeing and letting your unbelief be driven out by faith as you hear the word of God and say, yes, I want this love. I don't mainly want the buccaneers to have success. I don't mainly want to have a big enough retirement account. I mainly want your love to remain in my life. And as you stay there, you will bear much fruit. Hudson Taylor says, union with Christ and abiding in Christ. What do they not secure? Peace, perfect peace, rest, constant rest, answers to our prayers, victory over our foes, pure, holy, living, ever-increasing fruitfulness. All of these are the glad outcome of abiding in Christ. Now last, one more encounter very briefly. John 18, I, I have to squeeze this in. 
Because in the year 2024, a whole bunch of people are gonna tell you the answers you need are political. The answers you need are gonna come through government and its officials and soldiers and all of that. The last instance of Jesus applying this name to himself comes in the Garden of Gethsemane. A whole band of soldiers and officers of the chief priests and Pharisees come to arrest him. Jesus asked them, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus replied and said, I am, or I am he, I am. Might seem insignificant, not a big deal. Now we remember this echo of Exodus 3, this echo that has rebounded throughout this book. But then something strange happens in verse 6. When Jesus said, I am, or I am he, these soldiers, these officers, their armor, their weapons, what happens to them? They drew back and fell to the ground. There was a little glitch in the matrix for one second as the glory of Jesus lays them out as it will soon and very soon. Jesus simply said, I am. And then the glitch was over. They got up, dusted themselves off. What just happened? And they led him off to the cross like they were in charge. They weren't. Covenant life, one day, our glorious king will return in mighty power. He will destroy every enemy and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and King Jesus will reign forever and ever. King of kings, Lord of lords, forever, world without end. No elections, no appeals, no corruption, no conflict. Jesus is going to rule and he's going to reign forever. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I close with this quote from John Owen. That's so helpful. Why the study of who Christ is in his fullness, his power, his beauty, his glory. John Owen says this, by beholding the glory of Christ by faith, we shall find rest to our souls. Our minds are apt to be filled with troubles, fears, cares, dangers, distresses, ungoverned passion and lusts. By these, our thoughts are filled with chaos, darkness and confusion. But where the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, then the mind finds rest and peace. For to be spiritually minded is peace. Amen.